1, Moses begins his great exposition of the Torah. So if we were to jump back real briefly to chapter 4, verse 44, what we will find is Moses... This kind of begins the introduction. So this is the prologue to Moses' great uh, sermon, beginning in Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 4, 44, This is the law, as all English translations have it, but what lies behind that is the Hebrew Torah. This is the Torah that Moses set before all the people. I'll come back to that and why that's significant in just a few minutes, but we'll continue on here. In chapter 5, verse 1, Moses calls Israel to hear, to learn, and to be careful to do all that he is commanding the people. Doing the will of God is ultimately what Moses is after, provoking Israel to do. And what he is telling them is not mere in law code, It is instruction for how the people are to live because how we live is ultimately the grounds on which we are judged. So if we were to go to Romans 2, how significant is doing in the life of God's covenant people? Romans 2, verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. And then in verses 7 through 11, he explains that a little bit. Then he repeats something very similar in verse 13, Romans 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Again, just as we saw was the last week, two weeks ago, the connections between the gospel in Deuteronomy and the gospel as Paul understands it and its implications in Romans 8 and 9. So we have here the same sort of thing. Moses is not only telling his hearers to hear, to listen, but to also learn all of the statutes and to do them. Doing is absolutely necessary for God's people. Moses also stresses his role in Deuteronomy 5, verse 5, If you flip to Romans, stay there. Keep a finger in Romans. We'll keep going back to Romans. But in Deuteronomy 5, verse 5, Moses establishes himself as the covenant mediator, and that is the authority by which he uh, continues to speak to the people of Israel. One of the things he emphasizes in chapter 5, verse 5, While I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. How fitting is that in light of this morning's sermon? Um, Moses received direct divine communication and through the Spirit was able to deliver and recite that same message over and over again. What he is doing here in Deuteronomy 5 is thinking back 40 years to the words that the Lord gave him while he was on Mount Sinai. The tablets that he received on Mount Sinai were deposited in the ark. Moses, theoretically at least, would not have had access to those tablets. They were locked away inside the Ark of the Covenant, not to be seen even by Moses at this point. He didn't go into the Holy of Holies uh, to minister as the priest does for those 40 years. He seemed to have a separate tent that he would enter 
in order to speak to the Lord face to face, not the tabernacle where the ark was. What Moses gives us in Deuteronomy 5 is his memorized resuscitation of the Ten Commandments. Ten words, technically. And the rest of Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 26 is his interpretation, his exegetical work, his application of those Ten Commandments that he has memorized and recites. And as we will see next week, what Moses tells the Israelites is not identical to what the Lord gave in Exodus 20. Next week, we'll look at some of the differences between the ten words. This morning, we're only going to look at the first three commandments. That leaves us here then at Deuteronomy 5, verse 6. Moses begins repeating what the Lord had said 40 years ago. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the grounds by which the Lord commands the people. God bought or brought out the Israelite slaves from Egypt, and they became his slaves. They were not entirely released from slavery. They were transferred from one kingdom to another kingdom. They were not free to live as they pleased. They were to please their new master who offered them better position and a better place. We could say again, they did not become free because this great king overpowered the Egyptian king and plundered his people, the Israelites, to be his own possession. So they were obligated to obey their great master who had also become their gracious Lord. I brought you out from the house of slavery, therefore. There's the gospel, I brought you out from slavery, then the response, therefore. So, once again, we see the gospel logic. There is freedom, there is redemption, and then there is the proper response. The reason I emphasize the idea of slavery is because of what we have, again, back in Romans. So if we were to jump forward all the way to Romans, and we'll ask the question as we do this, are we under the same covenant that Israel was under? The response we, of course, would give is no. We are under the new covenant with Christ. But think of how Paul refers to himself in Romans 1, verse 1. Paul a servant, or if you have a little footnote there, as the ESV does, slave. Or older translations might have bond slave or bond servant. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Is Paul free to live as he pleases? No, he's not. Been freed from one kingdom, he is enslaved to another. He uses that exact language in Romans 6. So if we jump forward yet again to Romans 6, verse 15 to 18. What then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? That is, we've been freed from the law, we've been freed from sin. Therefore, are we free to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? 
either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So Paul uses the language of slavery to refer to his current condition as a Christian, and by extension, all Christians have this status of slavery to our master who freed us from the bonds of slavery. Now God freed Israel from the slavery of Egypt and gave them a binding instruction by which they were to walk in freedom. We can put it this way. If we jump back to Exodus 7... I would encourage you to go back to Exodus here for this one. Exodus 7, verse 16. Moses tells the, uh, the Lord tells Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me. In the wilderness. In Exodus 19, flipping forward, we have the Lord's expectation for this freed people who were released to worship Him in the wilderness. Exodus 19, starting in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what the Lord freed Israel out of Egypt for was that they might be able to worship the Lord. They bring him to the mountain. He brings them to the mountain And he says, now you are here at the mountain for the purpose of worship. What that worship looks like for Israel is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Their life was to reflect the Lord as an act of worship. How they were to do that is the Ten Commandments. What does a priest of What does a holy priest or a kingdom of priests or a holy nation, what does that look like? How does one be a priest in God's service? For the Israelites, it was the Ten Commandments and all of the implications of it. So what Moses is about to say, we are not under the same covenant because we were not freed from Egypt. We are under the covenant of Christ. Israel was freed from an earthly master so that all the external constraints were taken off Israel that they might be able to worship the Lord. And what that worship looked like is what Moses is getting to here in Deuteronomy 5 and following. What we've been freed from is nothing external. We've internally been freed from the bonds of sin so that we might be able to actually do what's in Deuteronomy 5 and following. We are bound to the same instruction, the same Torah, as Israel was, though we are not under the same 
covenant. So the statutes and judgments that Moses mentions in chapter 5, verse 1, are as equally binding on us as they were on the Israelites, but not in the same way. Jesus explains this, I think, in Matthew 5. Passage we're familiar with, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. So the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old. Another way we could approach it is that this Torah of Deuteronomy 4.44 is the same Torah that the Lord writes on the hearts of his people in Jeremiah 31.33, where he says, I will write my law on their hearts. That's Torah. I will write my Torah on their hearts, and they will walk in all my ways. So both from Jeremiah and from Jesus, this is what Christians do. Going back once more to Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Paul is on the same page. Romans 8, verse 4. Starting in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit the spirit leads christians to fulfill the law that moses is about to explain here we could jump down to romans 13 verse 10 where he says the same sort of thing love does not love does no wrong to a neighbor romans 13:10 Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He says the same thing in Galatians 6, verse 2. Last text we'll use for this. If I can get there. Galatians 6, verse 2. Honor your father. That's not what I'm looking for. Let's try Galatians 2, 6. That's Ephesians. Let's try Galatians. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. All of that to say, what Moses says here in Deuteronomy 5 is as binding on the Christian as it was on the Israelite, though in a different way. For us, this law requires a certain amount of what is uh, sometimes referred to as contextualization. And what that means is God has done something different in redemptive history. Christ has come. What fulfilling the law looks like for us is going to look a little bit different than it did for the Israelite in some cases. Not only that, our historical circumstances are different. These Ten words were given to a people who lived roughly, what, 4,000 years ago? There's a certain context and a certain way of life in which they lived. Our lives look considerably different. But as Paul has said in Galatians and in Romans, by loving one another and fulfilling and bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill this law 
But there's more detail to it than that. And so what, we, what we're going to do when we go through these ten commandments, these ten words, is we're going to explain and look at what did these words mean for the original audience, and a little bit by extension then, what is the underlying theology to each commandment? Why did the Lord give these commandments that he did? I firmly believe that there is a reason, a scriptural explanation, for why these are the Big Ten. They encapsulate an awful lot of material, um, and we, we will look at some of that, and by extension, some of the applications or implications, both for them and for us. It's a lot, of, lot to begin with uh, this morning. Thoughts or questions over all of that before we move on? Yeah, so only the Levites were officiating priests, but the Lord calls the whole nation uh, a nation of priests. Priests functioned as mediators and representatives. The Levites had a particular responsibility for that. And so there were certain qualifications that a Levite was supposed to live into. Not only a Levite, but actually a descendant of Aaron, most of the Levites were ministers, not priests. It was only the line of Aaron that were priests. And the statutes by which a, a, an Aaronic priest had to live was different in some degree than the average Israelite. But all Israel was supposed to function as a mediator between God and the nations and represent God to the nations. That's where I would say the connection primarily is. And to that passage, 1 Peter 2, I think? 1 Peter 1 or 2. Peter uses that exact passage in Exodus 19 to refer to the Christians. So we, we have the same function that Israel was supposed to have under the Sinaitic Covenant. One more reason I think what Deuteronomy 5 has to teach us is tremendously applicable. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Anything else? All right. Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting now in verse 6, and we'll read through verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, am the, for I the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a very difficult text to deal with grammatically and thematically. You have a handout 
I hope you were able to grab one on the way in. If not, there's some on the, perhaps some left at the back. And if not, there's some by this door here. There are different ways to understand verse 7. There's three different ways in which that verse is interpreted. Let me read them to you in the text. The way, the different ways they are read. Verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out, out, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not the first commandment in that case. It is the extrapolation. It is the result. The Lord brought them out. Therefore, no other gods. That is the Deuteronomic alternative in the second column. Interestingly enough, uh, the majority of Jewish commentators have I am Yahweh your God as the first commandment. To Protestant minds, that makes no sense at all. To the majority of the Jewish commentators, it does. According to Deuteronomy, I think it is perfectly acceptable that verse 7 not be considered a commandment for this reason. If it is a commandment, it is the only commandment that is a prohibition that does not begin with, you shall not. All translations, all English translations that I am aware of say, you shall have no other gods before me. But I have here uh, my translation of Deuteronomy 5 verse 7. There shall not be for you other gods besides me. That is a better reflection of the Hebrew text, in my opinion. Um, but there is not, there is not in the text, you shall not. It is, there shall not be other gods for you. So when we come to verse 7, how are we to understand it? Is it supposed to be the continued explanation of verse 6? and everything else follows in its wake, or does it stand as the first commandment? Both the Orthodox and the Reformed, as well as the Catholic and Lutheran understanding of the Ten Commandments, has verse 7 as the first of the commandments. If it is the first commandment, how are we supposed to understand it? Does it stand on its own, as its own commandment, or... Is the prohibition on making idols in verses 8 through 10 the explanation of what it means to not have other gods besides the Lord? As you can see, the Reformed and Orthodox, they have a separation, or they, they have no other gods besides me, and then you shall not make an idol as two separate commandments. The Catholic and the Lutheran have them as one commandment. So here's a little brain tickler for you. When we say the Ten Commandments ought to be posted in national monuments, which version of the Ten Commandments do you want posted at the monument? There are at least two significant understandings of the Ten Commandments within Protestantism alone. According to Deuteronomy, the way Moses explains it, I think there is also a third alternative. Daniel Block has dealt with this very swiftly and I think very adequately when he says, there's ten, we don't know which are the ten, it doesn't matter which are the ten, likely it was just to help uh, memorize what they were because you have ten fingers. And he leaves it at that. 
I am content, by and large, to leave the numbering there. If you want my opinion on technicalities, I'm happy to give them to you afterwards. If, if they are the same commandment, so if verse 7 to verse 10 is one commandment the way the Catholic and the Lutheran have it, that means making an idol by, by concept is to forsake the Lord. And one of the things that a discerning Bible reader needs to be able to do if we are going to be intellectually honest, is to make a distinction between what people do conceptually, what they're intending to do, and what they actually do. Right? Um, it is very easy for us to intend to do good while doing bad. There's a difference between intention and what we think we're doing and what we actually turn out to do. That becomes very important here. Because if these two commandments are the same thing, what it is saying is if you make an idol, you are intending to forsake the Lord. Because the Lord says, no other gods before me, and what that means is no other idols. Any other idols is to automatically forsake the Lord. That makes, I think, more apparent sense in light of verse 9. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. By you making an idol, you are automatically forsaking me, which provokes my jealousy. In this case, what it looks like to have other gods before the Lord is explained by idol making. But if we go with the Orthodox and the Reformed, and by the way, you'll see the numbers bolded in the Orthodox Reformed column, that's because I think most of us understand the Ten Commandments that way. Therefore, that's how I'm going to explain it. I'm going to go with the Orthodox and Reformed uh, for this. If they are two separate commandments, that means they are explaining two slightly different things, and we need to understand the difference between them. What this means is that one could make an idol and not intend to forsake the Lord. Almost certainly this is what happened with the incident of the golden calf, right? They make the golden calf and they say, here are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. They didn't mean to forsake Yahweh when they did that. That was not their intention. What their intention was was to represent the Lord through this golden calf. That, of course, provoked the Lord's jealousy because even though they did not intend to forsake the Lord by making an idol, that is what they did do. And so there's a distinction there between what they intend to do or what they mean to do or what they think they're doing and what they actually do. And so uh, a modern parallel. I'm going to try and give a modern parallel here. When a missionary or an evangelist is speaking to a Muslim and they're trying to make points of contact, a Christian might refer to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as Allah. The problem with doing that is that the very term Allah brings with it all sorts of connotations, all sorts of understandings. What the Muslim mind understands when they hear Allah is not the same thing conceptually that we say 
or what we mean when we say the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Yahweh. They're two different names. And those two different names mean two different things. And so can we, as Christians, refer to our God as Allah simply as a point of contact? I would say no. There's too much baggage with the name Allah that you can't cross those borders. And so by doing that, what we're, we're not intending to communicate anything that is not biblical. But what's happening is in the mind a lot more than what is in the Bible and a lot of false uh, reality is being attached to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we try and make those two names work together. They don't, I don't think. And so that is what I would say by unintentionally misrepresenting the Lord. We'll leave it there. Questions or comments uh, over this so far? Second commandment. Okay. We will take a step forward here. Focusing on verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean, before me? This is a common Hebrew idiom. If we were to translate it literally, there would be no other gods in front of my face. So we might say that this could be a prohibition against having any other deity in the sanctuary with the Lord. That might seem too simple, but the reality is uh, many excavations have revealed shrines in the land of Israel and particularly close to Jerusalem where there has been an Asherah pole inside what we would call the sanctuary or inside the holy place. And so the idea was common among uh, Canaanites that uh, Asherah was uh, a goddess escort who attended um, Baal and, and other gods, Dagon as well. What the Lord is saying here is, I work alone. You don't give me an Asherah pole I don't have an escort. I don't work in conjunction with anyone else. I work by myself. So don't have any other gods in the sanctuary thinking that I need them or that I work with them. So if you look at the back of the handout, there are three things that we are going to look at uh, with each of these commandments. And you will see commandment one and commandment two have a great deal of overlap with one another. Whether they're separate or not, they have a lot of thematic parallels. And so uh, the, the first one we'll look at here is, if God means that you shall have no other gods in my presence, he's simply ruling out no other gods can be worshipped 
along with me when you are worshiping at the sanctuary. The fact that the Lord is a lone God has already been mentioned by Moses in chapter 4, verses 32 to 34. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? His whole point there is no God has ever been heard of doing such a thing as this. I work alone. No one else has redeemed you. I alone have done it. And he'll make that plain again in just a minute. So in this case, if verse 7 is to be understood as no other gods in the sanctuary, it's simply forbidding any other gods before his face, in his presence. What the prohibition on idols is doing then is making a prohibition, you cannot worship any other gods outside of my presence either. So either way, uh, all spatial places for worshiping other gods is ruled out. If, on the other hand... What the Lord means by you shall have no other gods before me is you shall worship no other gods in preference above me. Then there are a few other things to look at. This aims to forbid Israel worshiping other gods in three ways. First, the Lord alone is worthy of worship. He alone rescued Israel and he has done for this people what no one else has. He has given them a place, and he has shown them his goodwill and is leading them to live in a place without harassment. This is why Israel was to not even name other gods. Exodus 23, 13, no other names of another god should even be found on their lips, simply because there's only one god worth mentioning, and that is the Lord. We read Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 34, but now look at verse 35 where he makes this plain. The Lord did all of this to you. It was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Verse 39 does the same thing. We'll jump down. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. The Lord showed himself victorious against all other gods and nations and kings and he has shown great displays of power that has conquered all other powers. No one else is worthy of worship. Number two, in Israelite theology, the Lord alone is the sovereign Lord of creation. As the creator, he establishes and interprets reality on our behalf. He makes the world what it is, Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore, Israel is not to try to understand their world through any other means 
other than hearing the voice of the Lord. Out of this commandment is extrapolated all sorts of prohibitions. No seances, no necromancy, no sorcery, none of those things. All of those things are prohibited as an extrapolation of this commandment. The Lord has established reality, therefore the way you understand the world and the way you relate to it is only through the Lord. He also providentially places all peoples where he does and in their times. Deuteronomy 2, verses 21 and 22. I have to actually start in verse 20. So Deuteronomy 2, verse 20. The sons that Ammon dwell in, which is the sons of Lot, the Lord gave it to them for a possession. Verse 20, it is also counted the land of Rephaim. The Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a people great in many, and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Amorites, Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. So all Moses is establishing there is the Lord gives lands to the people that he desires to give them to as the sovereign Lord. Number three, third theological principle that underlies this commandment to the Lord alone, because he is the creator and because he alone is worthy of worship, as he alone possesses all divine prerogative. What I mean there is no one else is able to call, to claim the same divine rights that the Lord claims. Exclusivity of worship, for example. No other God can claim worship. The Lord alone can claim to be worshipped. So he has rights no one else has. Biblically speaking, all the first fruits go to God. When something is devoted to the Lord, nothing can be taken back from him. The Lord can put in place for Israel prohibitions on mixing seeds and mixing types of clothing. And the way Israel is supposed to relate to their offspring, all of those things flow out as well from this commandment as well. The Lord alone is able to make reality what it is, and humanity does not have the right, or Israel at least does not have the right, to have prohibitions, on, or to have mixtures in their clothing and their seed. Israel does not have those rights. Humanity, we could argue, does. Thoughts or questions over all of that commandment one? Will be a beautiful thing. Thanks, Dave. Why do you think when he gives this command, he always identifies, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage? Why did he take that to begin his act, his history, instead of saying, I'm the Lord your God, creator of heaven and earth? Now, that implies, so 
So why, why use the redemption card instead of the creator card? My first response to that would be, the two are not all that different. What the Lord is calling the people of Israel to is the standard of living that they would have had without the fall. So as we will see in later on in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, the command for the Sabbath, for example, that is a creation ordinance, right? In Exodus, the Lord grounds the logic for the Sabbath in creation. This is what is right. That's not grounded primarily in redemption and exodus. In Deuteronomy, Moses grounds it in redemption. And that's one of the differences we'll see next week. So as creator, the Lord can command this of anybody. But as redeemer, he has a particular reason for commanding Israel to some of these things. So Israel, by pulling the redemption card... He's laying on Israel a double obligation. Not only do you have reason to obey me as creator, you have reason to obey me also as redeemer. And so those two things give a double push to the Israelites to um, persuade their obedience. The second thing, in terms of redemption, Israel is called to a higher standard of living than the rest of the world has been, up to this point anyway. So the commands that the Lord gives Israel, that they are to live by, function as well as a better, more genuine reflection of the Lord, but also of our relationship to the Lord, the the place of humanity. So going back one more time, the prohibition on mixing two kinds of seeds in the same field, or the prohibition on having two mixtures of Clothing, not to mention not trying to create two mixtures of animals, right? So when, when you think about the Egyptian gods, there's mixtures of animals, right? Even when you think about the cherubim in Israelite religion, that's mixtures of animals. So the visions Ezekiel has, uh, all of those sorts of things, there's mixtures. The Lord alone is saying, that belongs to me, to no others. Israel, by not even mixing two types of clothing together is showing the world this is our proper position in relation to the Lord. The Lord doesn't prohibit other nations from mixing two types of clothing together or two types of seed in the field. What Israel is doing is living at a higher standard to show something to the rest of the world that they don't necessarily have to live by. But they do that because of their calling to priesthood. So one of the things we do is we wear mixtures of clothing. One of the things we do is we often mix two types of seed in the same field. Um, Because, again, that um, redemptive history has changed. The way we reflect the Lord has changed. But for Israel, that is how they reflect not only the Lord and his holiness, but their relation to him as a nation of priests. Um, The law has a lot of balls it's juggling at one time as it directs Israel to live the way it does. Um, uh, The wisdom is just astounding uh, when you spend some time to think about it. Any other thoughts or questions? Follow-ups?
Yeah. That's the holy nation of Exodus 19. Yeah. Okay. Move on then to verses 8 to 10. We'll look at them one more time. We'll read them. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, I think three more theological principles help us understand this commandment a little bit better. What is the commandment communicating? First, the Lord does not share control, authority, or power. Again, largely implied from the first commandment, but this one has an added distinction. Israel was supposed to live like monotheists, but does the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, really teach conceptual monotheism? It's debatable. For example, if we go back to Exodus 12, 12, the Lord claims that he is battling not just Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt, he's actually battling the principalities and powers of Egypt, Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. In Exodus 15, verse 11, Moses, in his song of deliverance, strikes a similar chord. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Exodus 23, verse 32. This ends the book of the covenant in Exodus. Exodus 23, verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Not only that, but the very implication of Deuteronomy 5, verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Does that not imply at least the idea of the possibility of other gods. Now that has to be balanced with Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, which certainly points Israel in a direction. Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Verse 39, we've also read this, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. Those are the strongest statements leading towards monotheism in the first five books of the Bible. The thrust of Scripture, even in the first five books, is toward 
conceptual monotheism. But the way the Lord leads Israel there is by commanding functional monotheism. The way we live, the habits we procure, influence the way we think. Our habits influence our thinking. The Lord is commanding monotheism in order to lead Israel in that direction, even though he never comes right out and says, look, all those other things you worship, they're, they're, you have a misunderstanding about them. They're, they're not what you think they are. He doesn't say it that way. He doesn't say they're not gods. He says, okay, all oh, they're gods, whatever, but no other idols, no other gods before me. That means I do not share control, authority, or power. What the Lord does with the first two commandments and by what he does in bringing Israel out of Egypt, is he castrates all other gods of any power. So he says, they don't have power. Don't worship them. I alone am worthy of worship. I alone am to be worshipped. Just a quick question. And I'm just curious, and I've only been around five, seven, and it says, nor the gods. Did the Hebrews say Elohim in that context? Yes, yes, no other gods. The gods is plural. Okay. Okay. So, number one, the Lord is not one God among others. He does not share control, authority, or power. He is above all. Second, the Lord is not like other gods. Uh, he is not to be represented through any sort of images, which, as we've talked about already, inherently misconstrue him. So Moses has made a big to-do two times in Deuteronomy 4. When you met the Lord, you didn't see anything. All you heard was a voice. So do not worship the Lord by images. How we worship is dictated by who we worship. As Christians... We can look at the world and say they can worship however they want because they worship what they want. It is unwise, at the very least, for the Christian to take inventive or even culturally fashionable methods of worship and bring them into the church as a way to worship Jesus Christ. We don't worship the same sort of thing or one that the world worships. The way we worship is dictated by who we worship. Therefore, we worship Jesus Christ in spirit and truth. And everything else gets laid to the side. Now, there's a lot more detail we could go into there. I'm going to avoid it for now, partly due to time. Number three... The Lord is not able to be controlled or manipulated. One of the primary functions of images and idols in the ancient world was that if I have an image of my God, that God is present with me. I can appease that God by worshiping, not just the convenience of being at home, but if I don't have an idol of this God, I might not have access to that God. The idea of an idol is presence. The Lord is saying, you cannot manipulate my presence. Just because you have an idol does not mean I am there. The Lord denies that he is mediated through images 
And he denies that he needs anything from anybody. So Psalm 50, verses 12 and 13, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Uh, Acts 17, the Lord is not uh, served by human hands as though he needed anything. All of those sorts of things deny that the Lord's presence can be manipulated or controlled or that his presence is even so localized as to be in this image that it's not everywhere else at the same time. One of the things an idol does automatically is create a misunderstanding of the Lord's presence. He's everywhere. So to have an idol to say he's here in a different way, uh, to, to bless me, completely misunderstands the way the Lord works and who he is. Moses extrapolates out of this all sorts of other prohibitions. There are prohibitions on things like divination, prohibitions on cult prostitution, and even, as we will see later on in Deuteronomy, prohibitions against multiple sites of worship after the Lord places his name at the one place at which he will be worshipped. That's our tie into the third commandment, which we don't have time for this morning. I will come to it next week. Any thoughts or questions in closing, though, over the first two commandments? If it feels like a mouthful, it is. Uh, I spent roughly three to, I think it was about six months going over the first two commandments alone and all of their extrapolation. There, there's so much that could be said. Uh, with each of these commandments, to run through them this quickly is unfair um, and unworthy of the, the text, but this is what we have uh, to get through it. Thank you for joining. God willing, I'll see you next week.